Father God, just as now as we look at your word, we do ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, we would be people with hearts willing to be challenged by you and encouraged and, and move forward, Father. We want to be people constantly moving on with our spiritual walk. We never want to be people who plateau, Lord, and stay in one spot. You call us to follow you. You call us to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, to be like him, and that's an ever-increasing change, Father. I pray that we would be people who change more to towards being like Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, speak to us now as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, his name. Amen. Becky Smith was 84... Sorry, excuse me. very close. Um, Becky Smith was 84 years old and her sister Christine, 82. The years had taken their toll on them, taken the sight from one of them and bent the body of the second. They were sisters. So they could no longer attend their local church. Yet their church needed them. They lived on the Isle of Lewis off the coast of Scotland and a spiritual darkness had settled on their village. The congregation was losing people and the youth were mocking the faith, speaking of conversion almost like it was a plague. In October 1949, the Free Church of Scotland called upon its members to pray. But what could two elderly housebound sisters do? Quite a lot, they determined. They turned their cottage into an all-night house of prayer from 10pm to 4am, two nights a week. They asked God to have mercy on their city. After several months, Becky told Christine that God had spoken these words to her. From Isaiah 44, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on dry ground. She urged her pastor to conduct a revival and invite the well-known evangelist Duncan Campbell to speak. When Campbell refused to come, she insisted God says he's coming and he will be here in a fortnight. And it happened. For five weeks, Campbell preached every night to overflowing crowds, 7 p.m., 10 p.m., midnight and 3 a.m. Sinners were converted, pubs were closed for lack of patrons, and the Isle of Lewis tasted the presence of God. All because two women prayed. He's my best mate. Sorry, I'm, I'm ever so sorry to, to be like this. I've been there. It's called the house that shook, and I went up and touched it, and it's so moving. And even today, the Isle of Lewis on the Sunday, nothing happening. I'm sorry, Gary. It's, it's just the most amazing place. Go there if you can. There you are. Thank you. Brilliant. Go there if you can. Go there. Absolutely. Um, thank you. That's no, good. It's good. It's always nice to hear someone that's been somewhere like that. Uh, prayer is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Prayer is brilliant. There are, and that story is literally one of billions of stories of, from God's people um, across the church, across history. And even in this own, our own church, we've got many great stories, haven't we, where God has answered amazing prayers. And I want to remind you of two prayers that really have stuck in my mind, two very different prayers. Uh, one you won't be familiar with and one you will be. Uh, Ron Burton, who passed away last year, uh, a valued great member of this church and, and greatly missed by many of us, uh, told me a story once which stuck in my mind, a story of his time of prayer where he said he felt the closest he'd ever had done with God in prayer. He said that for half an hour as he sat at his study desk, it was as if he was in heaven itself 
That's what it felt like to Ron Burton. It was the most amazing story. He just told it to me once or twice, I think. And it really stuck with me. I thought, I'd love to have just a bit of that, just once. And I guess some of you will feel exactly the same. Four years ago, it would be, wouldn't it? I remember as well another story of prayer. Lily McNally was sadly diagnosed with meningitis. I remember the phone call. I was at a concert in London. I remember Martin phoning me up and telling me. I remember the fear of Martin and Ingrid, the worry that they went through as Lily was diagnosed with meningitis. But I also remember the prayers of not just people in this church, but I'm sure across the entire world, friends and family. And I also remember the moment, five days later, after going into hospital, five days. When you have meningitis, if you're going to get better, you're there for about five weeks, I think. A long, long time. Pumped full of all sorts. Five days later, Lily was home. To make it more wonderful, she was home for Christmas Day. And I remember when Martin came out the front Christmas morning and thanked God for answered prayer. Isn't it a most amazing story in our church family? And those two stories really represent two different understandings, two different approaches to prayer, two different views of prayer that we often have. The first being that we often see prayer as this personal moment between us and God, like Ron, where we're able to be in the, the, the presence of God, an intimate time where we almost see his face as, as well as we can this side of heaven. And then the second story, the story of Lily, reminds us that prayer is more than just personal time with God. It is powerful. Powerful thing that actually changes situations. I have no doubt that that story would be different without the prayers of God's people. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. Last week, I guess, we were thinking about prayer as that personal time in the presence of God. We spoke of how being in God's presence is the antidote for discouragement and losing heart when things go wrong. Well, this morning, I want to think about prayer as something powerful, because prayer is powerful. The devil loves to tell us it isn't. In fact, I think he makes it one of his main missions to tell God's people it isn't powerful. Why bother? It won't do anything. I think he loves to whisper that. So we think, well, I won't pray. I'll fix it. But I think God says, why don't you ask me to fix it first? Then you do something. Let's do it that way around, perhaps. But prayer is powerful. I love those stories in the Bible, like Acts chapter 9, when Peter goes to see the lady called Tabitha, who's dead. She died, and he goes into her room, and he just says to her, he prays, get up, wake up. And what does she do? She wakes up. She comes back to life. That's what prayer is. Prayer brings people back from the dead. That's how powerful prayer is. Across the Bible, there are loads of amazing, powerful prayers, from Samson to Moses, Hannah to Jonah, to name just a couple. So often we focus on prayer as something that enriches us personally. And I think often Christians forget how devastatingly powerful prayer as a weapon really is. Um, Paul Stevenson told me, uh, sent me an article a couple of years ago, the most amazing story of the fall of the Berlin Wall. But do you know the part prayer had to play in the fall of the Berlin Wall? I'd like to read to you an excerpt from the BBC um, website, a BBC article that I downloaded this morning just to uh, read to you. So it's kind of long, but just read this and follow along with me. And if my German present, uh, pronunciation is wrong, uh, forgive me. Um, it's not my native tongue. Uh, my native tongue is Essex, um, and we speak our own language down there. In it, Anyway, so, ignoring death threats and huge banks of armed police... Thousands gathered at St. Nicholas Church in east, the East German city of Leipzig on the 9th of October to pray for peace. 
The congregation then joined an estimated crowd of over 70,000 on a protest march against the country's communist regime. It was the largest impromptu demonstration ever witnessed in East Germany. But this was no spontaneous flash mob. It was the culmination of years of weekly prayer meetings organised by the pastor of St Nicholas Church. Disillusioned with the Berlin Wall, the physical fault line of the ongoing Cold War and the repressive East German regime, the pastor began organising prayers for peace every Monday evening beginning 1982. On many occasions, fewer than a dozen people attended the prayer meetings. The East German government strongly discouraged its citizens from becoming involved in religious activities. But the meetings continued each Monday without fail. Meetings were open to everyone, young people, Christians, even atheists, all sought refuge there. Attendances soared as word of the peace prayers spread. On the 8th of May 1989, the authorities barricaded the streets leading to the church, hoping to put people off. But it had the opposite effect, and the congregation grew. There were beatings, arrests, and demonstrations at protest rallies in Leipzig, Berlin, and Dresden. By this time, the prayer meetings had led to a series of peaceful protests in Leipzig and other cities that became known as the Monday Demonstrations. Things came to a head on the 7th of October 1989, the 40th anniversary of the German Democratic Republic. There were hundreds of arrests made among the crowds in front of the church. Up to 8,000 people crowded into St. Nicholas Church, including members of the feared Stasi secret police who had been sent to occupy it. Other Leipzig churches opened to accommodate the additional protesters. About 70,000 people now gathered in the city. East German officials would later say that they were ready for anything except candles and prayer. After an hour-long service at St. Nicholas, the pastor led the worshippers outside, and slowly the crowd began walking round the city, of course with other people, past the Stasi headquarters, chanting, We are the people, and no violence. They were accompanied by thousands of helmeted riot police ready to intervene. They only realised afterwards how close they'd come to being potentially massacred. Footage of the march was broadcast widely and it inspired the Monday demonstrations throughout East Germany in the following weeks. And about 120,000 people took to the streets the following Monday. The dissidents became increasingly emboldened with around 300,000 taking part in protests on the 23rd of October. Exactly a month after the events of the 9th of October, the Berlin Wall came down amid scenes of jubilation witnessed around the world. I wonder how many walls remain up in our country. I wonder how many walls remain up in our towns. I wonder how many walls remain up in our families or our workplaces or our lives. I wonder how many walls remain up in our church because we don't pray. John Bunyan said, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. Somebody once said, if you want to know how popular the church is, see how many come on a Sunday morning. They then said, if you want to see how popular the minister is, see how many people come to the evening service. Some of you get the irony of that already. But if you want to know how popular God is, see who comes to the prayer meeting. Corrie Ten Boom said, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. 
And that quote brings us to our reading that Pat gave to us earlier on from the book of James, chapter 5. A book of James that has a straightforward, very clear truth. He says in chapter 5, verse 16, the second half, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This passage is all about how you rightly respond to particular situations. As uh, Pat read to us, you know, if anyone is happy, they ought to praise. If someone's in trouble, they ought to pray. The response to everything, James says, illness, sin, happiness, sadness, is always to pray first. Let me read it to you again. Verse 13 to 20. James writes, if anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. If they are happy, let them sing songs of praise. If anyone among you is ill, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, something we would happily do here, if you want it, by the way. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James, ever the practical book, is clear. Prayer is effective. An effective prayer is one of faith. An effective prayer is one where we trust God for the answer. An effective prayer comes from a life that is righteous. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, very clearly, very straightforwardly, just like James, just completely to the point, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, because if you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What a thing to say. What an amazing truth to hear. James is being very straightforward in chapter 5 of his book, telling us that prayer, to be effective, needs faith. Faith is that trust that God will move. Faith is the trust that God can move. I wonder how often God's people pray faithless prayers, not really believing God's going to do anything. Effective prayer needs faith, and that faith must originate from a righteous life. John Bunyan again said, prayer will make a man cease from sin. By man, by the way, I hope you're reading man and woman. It's just the language of the time. But man and woman from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. So, sorry, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. I think that what James is trying to say is making an important point. He's not saying that God only answers the prayer of the super-righteous, or the really, really good and the really perfect and not the broken. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is that sin blocks our conversation with God. When we're talking about the sin that, doesn't, uh, that hinders our, our prayer life, when we're talking about unrighteousness, I don't think James is meaning general brokenness. We're all broken. I'm broken. That doesn't mean that because I'm a sinner, God stops hearing my prayers. I think the sin he's talking about, this unrighteousness, I think is that, that deliberate act those deliberate, conscious decisions we make to ignore the law of God when we know 
the law of God. I think it's that deliberate, conscious, I'm going to do it even though I can almost hear God saying, don't, that kind of sin. That's the unrighteousness, I think, that gets in the way of prayer. You see, to be righteous isn't to be perfect. If you're looking to be more righteous, you're not going to be perfect. It's not about how good you are, how good other people think you are. The Bible is clear. Our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. I'm not more righteous in and of myself. If I'm righteous in the sight of God, it's because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So therefore, the righteous life that has an effective prayer from it isn't from a really, really super religious person that we all say, well, he or she is really religious. It's the person who is close to their saviour. And you can look well broken, but be very close to your saviour. And you can look well spiritual and be quite far from him. Righteousness is to do with proximity to Christ, not how good you are in a crowd. Uh, So I don't think he's saying that if you're broken, God ignores you. What I think he's saying is when you're close to Jesus, that's the righteousness he's talking about. A prayer of a righteous person has great power. We're righteous through faith in Christ. He covers us. He makes us clean. Our prayers are more effective, not when other people think we're good, but when we're close to our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we're seeking to follow him as best we can. And what I love about James is he makes this point very clearly and very boldly. He makes a very clear point that prayers of the righteous and the godly are powerful. And then he gives us an example. Clearly, uh, James went to Bible college because when you learn how to public speak, you're told, you know, make a point, then you give an illustration, and then you explain it underneath. That's, that's pretty much how you do it. Um, obviously, I make it look more complicated and, you know, clever. All right. Never mind. Um, perhaps not this morning. Anyway, so he makes his point. The prayer of the righteous is powerful. And then he gives this illustration of a man named Elijah. If you don't know who Elijah is, you should go and look at the book of Kings in the Old Testament. Elijah was a prophet. And what's amazing about this particular illustration is if I was James, I wouldn't have used Elijah in the slightest. Because of all the people you're ever going to come across in the Bible, none of us have anything in common with Elijah. You're never going to do the things Elijah did. You're never going to say the things Elijah did. You're never going to go to the places Elijah went because he was so unique in terms of what his role was as a prophet in the Old Testament. And yet James says in verse 17, Elijah was a human being Just like us, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And so when you first read that passage, you think, what are you doing? Surely you should give people a better illustration, uh, one they can aspire to, something you could be more like like Peter from the New Testament. He's a bit rough around the edges, isn't he? Let's be more like Peter. No, no, he says Elijah. And I wonder why he's doing that. I don't think he's saying you could be like Elijah. I think what he's saying is the principle of powerful prayer is the same for everybody. Elijah had to be righteous. Look what he did. You have to be righteous for your prayers to be powerful as well. He's not saying you'll be like Elijah, but I think what he's saying is the principle of powerful prayer is the same for everybody. It'd be a bit like, I know Tim loves loves his football, uh, loves to play, and uh, and, particularly wants to get better at crossing the ball. If I was to say to Tim Bray, um, if you want to get better at crossing the ball and free kicks, you just have to practice every single day. I would then say... Remember David Beckham, you know, for all the faults in his game, he was an excellent crosser of the ball and a free kick taker. He practiced morning, noon and night, every single day, hours and hours and hours. He became world class at that. Tim, that's what you should do. I'm not telling Tim he's going to be like David Beckham, sorry. Probably, probably not. Um, but what I'm saying is the principle for improvement is true for you and it's the same principle for David Beckham. So, 
Effective prayer is through righteousness and faith. Same for Elijah. It's the same for every single Christian who's ever walked the earth. So how did Elijah pray? Let's think about that. What are some practical things we can take away? How can we enrich our prayer life over this coming week? Well, let me just give you a few things that Elijah did um, that actually enriched his prayer life and had made his prayer effective. Number one, really simple, he prayed. You want to have an effective prayer life? You have to do it. You actually have to do it. That may sound like a really silly thing to say, but you know, the average Christian, they reckon, prays for two minutes a day. Think of who you don't talk to for the rest of the day when we don't pray for more than two minutes. You can talk to God who made the universe just by speaking. You can actually address him as Abba Father, and yet, on average, and I'm sure none of you are average, um, we're better than that, Two minutes a day, talking to the King of Kings. Don't expect God to move if you don't pray. Men and women of the Bible, across the beginning to end, prayed first, not last, and it was their daily routine. So, effective prayer needs prayer. Secondly, Elijah prayed fervently. He had a passion and intensity when he prayed. He believed in God. His faith was alive and on fire. I wonder if that can be said of all the Christians in God's church. Brother Yun from the uh, book called The Heavenly Man, some of you would have read it. He's a a well-known Christian over in China. And he told the story of a woman that he knew, Chinese woman obviously, over in China. And she had about five kids and she wanted them all to become Christians. And so every single night after dinner, she would go into her room and she would kneel before God and she would pray for about two hours for her children to become Christians. And two things happened. Number one, all five of them became Christians and all five of them became effective, dynamic Christians, more importantly. And number two, she wore grooves into her wooden floor. Knee-shaped grooves into her wooden floor. I challenge us, myself included, over our month of prayer to come here every night, every time there's a prayer meeting, to come 10 minutes, half an hour, the whole time, and actually wear grooves into the floor of this church. Wouldn't it be good if it were tripped over a lot more in our church because it's the floors like that, because we're all on our knees, figuratively speaking. Third thing Elijah did was he prayed effectively. He expected results. Um, We must stop praying safe prayers as Christians. Prayers of doubt, prayers of hedging our bets. Will you, won't you, Lord? The Bible tells us to ask for what we want. Jesus says, what do you want? The verse is, come and ask God for what you want in my name. We should ask with expectantly. God might say no. Of course he might say no, and then that's a different issue. And you deal with that with trust and faith. But you must ask for what you want. Number four, he was righteous. Sin didn't cloud his conversation with God. And that's so vital. Deliberate ungodliness will get in the way of our prayer life. We must try to be holy as God is holy every single day. Number five, he prayed specifically. He prayed for drought and then he prayed for rain. And I love it. I remember when, I hope you don't mind me picking on you, Georgia. But I remember Georgia when Bobby had his terrible accident. And those first couple of weeks and months were really touch and go and were scary. And George was excellent, um, I should have asked your permission, sorry, um, uh, sending us texts, but not just please pray. It was please pray for this. Please pray the swelling comes down. Please pray the pressure comes down. Please pray that his blood pressure comes down. It was specific. You knew what you were praying for. You asked God for that one particular bit, and it was a good way to pray. Pray specifically for what we want, what we need, what's on our heart. 
We should be praying for names of people. Don't just pray that my family will all become Christians. Is there someone in your life that isn't a follower of Jesus Christ? Name them before the king every single day. If there's a problem at work that's bothering you, name it every single day. Be specific. I want this, Lord. Please do this. He's always got a better plan, of course, and he may say no. But pray specifically. for That's how Elijah prayed. And number six... He prayed according to God's will. Deuteronomy 28 and verses like it reminded Elijah that God's people, the Israelites, were under a covenant with God. And when they broke that covenant, God said he would stop the rain, stop the flourishing crops, and stop blessing the land. And so he prayed according to that covenant and those promises and curses that God had given for his people. Effective prayer is about faith and righteousness and understanding who God is according to his word. And so the point is simple. I'm done. Prayer changes things. Prayer is powerful. God responds to the prayers of his people. How else do you say it? What else is there to say? The point is simple, isn't it? But the reality is shocking and heartbreaking because Christians don't pray. Just like Cain in the Garden of Eden, God gets some rather than the best, like Abel. No wonder we stray. No wonder we don't experience the answers we want. No wonder we don't know the presence of God in the way we need to know it. So let me ask us a question. Have we got a routine? Do you make an appointment with God every day and keep it no matter what? Have we come to church this week and prayed for the next year of the ministry of this church? Do we believe that church matters that much that we've got to get God to bless it early? Do we pray? Do we come even though prayer is open to everyone? We pray in January because we seek that the light of this church will get brighter and not darker. And let me tell you, the fuel for that light is the prayers of God's people. So come. Come to prayer. Come tonight at 7 o'clock. Come to the prayer meetings across this week. Pray on the train. Pray at home before you do anything else. Pray with your children. Pray with your partners. Pray as you walk. Pray as you sing. Pray in the Spirit. Pray quietly, pray loudly, shout, raise a name, raise up a situation, raise a request, raise up a praise and do it over and over and over and over and over again until there are grooves in your heart. Be the widow from last week, be like Elijah this week. Let's be the people of God who are found mostly on our knees with our faces towards heaven, seeking and begging that God's kingdom will come. Pray and frighten the devil so that he will flee. Pray and glorify God and see lives transformed. Pray together with the church, not just here, but across the town, across the county, across the world, across the globe. But just pray. Because let me tell you, it's weird when we don't. Father God, I just want to lift up, Lord, our thoughts this morning. And Lord, we all want to say sorry. Every single one of us. Because Lord, all of us fall to temptation with distractions. We think of those disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. All Jesus said was, watch and pray. Lord, he tells us to watch and pray, I believe, as well. And Lord, so often we're found sleeping spiritually. Father God, wake up your church. Lord, change is coming. The day is coming, Lord, when your people will have only prayer. And Father God, in a way, perhaps that's a good thing. Because we rely so much on ourselves. But Lord, you call us to rely on prayer first. To rely on you above all things. Lord, forgive us for those times when we don't speak to you. 
Lord, for the hours and hours and hours that go by. Forgive us, Lord, for the excuses we give ourselves. I haven't got this and I haven't got that. Lord, none of those excuses will wash when we stand before the King. You call us, Lord, to know your presence. You call us, Lord, to wield the sword against spiritual forces, a sword of prayer. And Lord, I pray that we will wield that this week and that you will push back darkness because your people cry out to you. And I lift this up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.